Welcome to Macintosh and Mod Haven't Seen What, the podcast where we make each other watch movies we should have already seen. I'm Diana. And I'm David. And this week we watched An American in Paris. Three friends struggle to find work in Paris. Things become more complicated when two of them fall in love with the same woman. Mm-hmm. What was this? It's a fever dream. What was this? <laughs> I, so like, there's a part of me that knows because... I know a little bit of a story having to do with one of my favorite films that is gorgeous. But like, this film is like, this story sucks. And then it's like, oh, great. We're going to have another Gene Kelly belly. Oh, fuck. That's the best part of the whole thing. (laughs) My right, right. Like the dancing, the choreography, and then this color palette. Which has been used forever. And I also determined was Wes Anderson at the same time. Oh my God. It's been used by everyone for a variety of reasons. We'll get into specifically why. Because it's not just this that it's inspiring other things. I've read the trivia now. And I actually understand why this happened. Sure. What I am still baffled by is the end result. Yep. Because this isn't a movie. I mean, I guess it it has some kind of very loose story structure mm-hmm. that kind of resolves in the end. Sure. But at no point did they ever really make a decision as to how they were going to actually tell this story. It's like they were going for dangerous liaisons, but they didn't. <laughs> at every turn, they make decisions that do No service to the story whatsoever. Correct. Every single time they pull out a number, it is to just have a fucking number or a moment. And it is so beautiful a movie. It is undeniable how gorgeous this movie Mm -hmm. is that it is belying the fact there is literally nothing to hang on to with it. It sucks. That's the problem. It sucks. And and yet you cannot look away. You can't. Yeah, that's probably fair. The accolades that this movie has received in retrospect make a ton of sense. Okay. Because of like the technical achievement of it, right? Mm-hmm. So to me, what I don't get is why this film was so well received in its time. <sighs> and it really wasn't. I mean, let's let's be perfectly honest. Many people have looked back on this and been like, this movie is so overrated for what it is. I I think it's one of those, seeing Gene Kelly makes you happy. Uh, That doesn't hurt. I mean, same. I mean, he wasn't alive during my time, and still, I see his face show up on screen, and I'm happy. So, that's butts and seats. And despite the nonsense of the actual movie story, those last 20 minutes... Are, are worth the price of admission. And they're also something that if you took that on its own and said, okay, we're going to go watch the ballet and that's what you saw, there, there would be no question to its artistry there. I mean, it just, it just, it's there. It's the holy fucking shitness of the whole thing. Yes. The sheer audacity of what they've put on screen. Mm-hmm. It's one of those things where you go, well, this is incredible, but why didn't you also bother to tell a fucking story while you were at it? I didn't have to. <laughs> it's my guess. Yeah. Hmm. Well, 
I, I think we have some reasons that this might have gone down the way it did. Okay. The budget for this film was $2,725,000. That roughly equates to $28,672,000 today. Okay. This is a decent-sized budget for a film. Oh, yeah. Its box office was roughly $7 million, or $73,650,000. Quite a good success story. Not, you know, blow you out of the water, but hey, it did very well. And all of this in spite of the fact that for the last 20 minutes and 25 seconds of this movie, there are no words spoken. None. Mm-hmm. Now, we know why, obviously, but still. It's still amazing. Producer Arthur Freed came up with this idea. He attended a concert at the Hollywood Bowl that focused on the jazz age music of the Gershwins, and particularly George Gershwin, the composer. He just wanted to buy the rights to the American in Paris tune. He wanted to create a film, put it in Paris, and then have this as a centerpiece. And then they could use whatever other music they wanted to. Ira, who controlled all the rights to George's music at this point after his passing, said he would only sell on the condition that if they did a musical, it had to be all Gershwin songs. Okay. So... During a weekly pool night that the two of them had because they're friends, I guess, they reached an agreement. MGM purchased the rights to the Gershwin tunes for $158,870. That's about $1,675,000. And Ira received a consulting fee of $56,250 or $590,000 today. In case they needed any new lyrics for the songs, because nobody else was going to get to do that besides the Gershwin maestro himself, Ira. Mm -hmm. So somehow Freed is the one who got it in his head that, well, if we're doing the jazz age, I love Gershwin and I love French Impressionism. So we're going to build a Gershwin musical around that concept. Okay. Like, I don't hate that. The premise is so good. It is good. We've got expats living in Paris, which happened a lot around then. There's like this weird combination of this movie and Funny Face. That is just like, there's such a, a crossover here of expats in America. Also, the song's wonderful. <laughs> and... The scene with Audrey Hepburn in that film dancing the in the in the club would have made so much more sense in this movie. And it would have worked really well too with those characters. You could have had the piano guy pianoing and Gene Kelly dancing, and then the other dude like loving up on some ladies other than the main lady that they're all interested in. And it would have been a great scene. Leslie Caron dancing that sequence. Mm-hmm. Don't get me wrong. Audrey does a fantastic job. It's an iconic scene. But it's a cartoon. Yeah. Part of the icon is the fact that it's Audrey Hepburn. Mm-hmm. But Leslie Caron is a dancer. Yes. A full-on fucking dancer and would do so much more justice to that choreography. Exactly. <sighs> Such a missed opportunity. It comes down to the writing. Before we, we dive into that too much, we do have to mention what you bring up, which is that This is primarily a movie about dance. Yes. MGM was not excited about a dance movie. 
they could get behind a musical. Sure. But this is kind of a musical, but there's, you know, a full-on fucking ballet as your finale. I'm sorry. I need to introduce them to the step-ups. Well, okay, but it's 1951. Still, come on, man. So in order to convince the studio, Gene Kelly screened 1948's The Red Shoes to convince MGM executives that a dance-centered film could be hugely successful. I believe we've mentioned The Red Shoes on this podcast before. It is the classic Diana film (laughs) in that I don't know how it came to be in our house, but we had it on VHS. And it was, of course, because I like dance. My grandmother had a ballet studio. So my mom used to have me watch this and I was obsessed with it. And there's this scene where the ballet director and the the principal ballerina have this conversation. It's like, do you want to live? Do you want to dance? Why do you want to dance? Why do you want to live? I don't know exactly why, but uh, I must. That's my answer, too. It's, it's overwrought, and it's insane. And my mother used to say that to me all the time. That musical is so beautiful. And there was one time I got it on DVD after it had been remastered. Thank you, Martin Scorsese, because he led the effort for that to happen. And I brought it home and I was watching it. And David walked in during the big ballet sequence. He's like, oh, I get why you talk about this movie all the time. Yeah. He still has not seen it. We will be covering it for this podcast at some point. That goes in the classic movies section. Because, <laughs> like, there's going to be a whole lot of emotions with those episodes. But, oh, my God, if you have the opportunity to see The Red Shoes, do it. It has been remastered through Criterion. So mm-hmm. it is available through some of those services. You should be able to find a copy much easier now than you it would have been in the past. Yes. Other than just like begging for it to show up on Turner Classic Movies, which was probably the only way you saw it earlier. Even then, that's a that's a tough go. Actually, I'm going to see if it's streaming anywhere. It is currently streaming on HBO Max. Yeah, it's one of those TCM curated classics. Please, please go see it. Well, let's talk about our writing, where I think we have a huge fucking problem. Yeah, it's crap. What's sad here is that our writer is a pretty fucking famous dude. It is Alan J. Lerner. Okay. He is the Broadway legend who worked with Frederick Lowe, a.k.a. Lerner and Lowe, to create the musicals Brigadoon, Paint Your Wagon, My Fair Lady, and Gigi. Okay. This is not a guy who doesn't understand how to write stuff. Okay. Before this, he wrote Royal Wedding, and then after this, he wrote The Bandwagon, Brigadoon, Gigi, My Fair Lady, Camelot, Paint your wagon on a clear day you can see forever, and the 1974 version of The Little Prince. This hurt. <laughs> what do we think of the writing of this film? Hot, hot garbage. It's not. <sighs> the points don't connect. And the parts where you're supposed to be like, oh my God, that one guy knows that they're both interested in the same lady is not played for comedy. It's just made, played for awkward. It's like, you can't do that well. At this point in time in a musical. This movie has no idea what it wants to be. No. It, it really doesn't. I mean, it is so odd because it could be a full-on drama, a tense, 
romantic drama that culminates in this beautiful ballet with these two mm-hmm. characters coming together and examining the the sort of sadness and and melancholy that comes with the decision they have to make. Like mm-hmm. we could go in that full mid fifties melodrama thing there, where it's a sort of melancholy, sad story of these people who are in love but they don't feel like they should be together. Mm-hmm. So that's this undercurrent going underneath the script, and yet they also phrase it as a musical comedy, and they don't ever decide which one is it supposed to be. And the thing is, it could be. It just needs to be. <sighs> I really think the best plan of action is a romantic comedy of errors. Twelfth Night. Everything's mixed up, but the two most destined people end up together. But even that's not really what happens. Well, and and not to give La La Land huge heaps of praise, but that sort of tone around the romance of that story, mm-hmm. the characters are shit. But the story of their romance in this setting could work so well. Well, here's the thing. That's exactly what they did with La La Land. La La Land is this movie. A little bit. A little bit. The difference is they took the romance seriously. I'm not saying it was good. I'm not saying those are good characters, good people. But they treated it with sincerity. And so those scenes have emotional weight. Again, I think La La Land is crap. Yes. I remember like the first 20 minutes of that movie, I'm like, I am already bored and I'm pissed. All these crane shots are garbage. Yeah, they are. Like, don't don't ever show me La La Land and tell me it's a cinematic wonder piece. No, it fucking isn't. Go look at this. The script of that movie is the thing I have the least problem with. Exactly. <laughs> and even then, there's still problems. But like... This film, characters, great. Setting, great. Like, everything's great. Except for what you have these people doing. And I can even buy he's he's made a choice. He's made a choice and he's seeing the woman of his dreams pass him by. And as she's passing him by, he imagines their love story. And so that's the ballet we go on. And then we see him just be like, and that's the choice I've made. But we don't earn that moment. No, and then and then they wind up together. No, 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 no. Most important thing I realized watching this movie, and that's the problem, and it's fucking Gene Kelly's fault. This this movie is Gene Kelly's fault. The bad parts are his fault. Even though the best part is his fault, the the bad parts are all his fault. He cannot act sad. (laughs) He is never sad. He's angry. He never acts sad. Therefore, his character can only be sad when he's dancing that now that's a whole actor thing we'll 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 pull on here in a minute but that is a huge deciding factor in what to have a gene kelly character do yeah that is huge when you pointed that out it blew my mind because it cuts so deep to a core that like it would take reading three Gene Kelly biographies to suss out. I mean, like, it's it's something way deep down. I'm about ready to do that work because I just now realized that, yeah. too. <laughs> because when I watch him dance, you see everything, especially in this one. This one, he dances sad. He dances joyfully. He dances romantically. I wouldn't say he's sexy. Not in this one. Not really. 
But then I look at Singing in the Rain, which is probably his other most famous piece of film that he's done. And there we see the flirting. We see the joy and the fun. Like Moses Moses is just fun. Yeah. But Singing in the Rain is just like joy just expounding out of your body. You're just like, this is this is crazy to me. That is like he's this phenomenal a dancer. And he cannot let himself act sad. Yeah. Yeah. We shouldn't just rag on Gene Kelly for this story. No. I can't not mention the fact of how they phrase Lisa's character in this goddamn movie, which from the very beginning made me want to retreat inside of myself. (laughs) Because the fact that Henri goes, she was 14. Mm-hmm. I took her in. We fell in love. Then later she came back to me. And even though you are trying so hard to make it clear that she had agency to. Uh, no. Fuck you. It's so badly done. It's so badly done. And that character would be so much more interesting if it was. Yeah, I, I, I took her in and, you know, she's fat. She's a great girl. She left. Now she's back. And I realize I'm in love with her. And that's what's weird because how do we change that? And that's where his conflict with her comes from because then it would be, I'm in love with her. Like I grew up with her. Am I, am I really in love with her? Like if he was having this internal conflict and she just thinks we're the best of friends, we're super close. Oh no, he wants something romantic. I don't know how I feel about this. Ew, weird. That guy's hot. Like all of those layers could have been played and they would have been played for comedy, but also some real and true emotional weight without it being creepy and gross. I have to wonder how the stage musical comes off with this because it was more recently turned into a stage musical. Mm-hmm. And how did they address it? And did they try to dive into those themes? Because it would play so well if you actually took the time to think through it. They're not. They're thinking about the spectacle more than anything. And you could you could still have that part of the dynamic without it being gross. Yeah, exactly. And making it more like this is a complication to these two people being together. This is a complication of those two people being together. Like uh, that's the stuff that makes these webs interesting. It doesn't help either that this is nobody's fault, but Georges Guattari, who's playing Henri, was two years younger than Gene Kelly. Like, the fact that Gene Kelly is supposedly a GI fresh out of the war, probably in his 20s, when that man looks to be in his 40s. Don't get me wrong. He's gorgeous, but he is clearly older. (laughs) But that's the other thing. Let him be 40. Let them be however old they are. It's fine. They're expats. That's fine, too. But they do this weird shit where they're trying to make... Henri, this older guy, and you're like, but but this is all so weird. I mean, let's just put it up there with Grace and you're 35 playing 18. No, no. Why did we ever, why did we ever accept these things? Except that Leslie Caron is like very young. Yes, because men are allowed to play young forever and women are allowed to play young for five seconds and then they become an old hag. Okay, this is an established truth. And, And the thing is, there are times where you don't care because the story's good enough and the acting's sure. good enough that it pulls it through. But in this movie, it just glares out at you because of how you set it up. It's just weird. Now, the bigger criticism that has historically come across Learn Your Script is that 
an American in Paris, and a lot of these songs were composed during the Jazz Age. Okay. The intent of that music was to embody the hedonism and euphoria of that time. Mm -hmm. So they said because he had set this in the 40s, post-war, in a much more conservative era, all of the huge joie de vivre, other than that ballet, does not reflect the tone of the music. And in hearing that and watching it, there is a disconnect. Yeah. I mean, they, they, I could tell they were playing Rhapsody in Blue and they were ruining it. And, and it's very weird because all of these people, especially Oscar Levent, we'll talk about it when we get to him and the cast, understand Gershwin. Like, these are, this film is populated with people who absolutely understand George Gershwin, but they did not match the story to the music. If you had set this post-World War I, mm-hmm. I think it's a different movie and I think it works. Yeah. And I think they're absolutely right in that that energy is missing. Oh, agree. I, I agree with that. It does change the tone of the music and it changes. And this is something I didn't think about until now is it changes the life on the street, which there is none. I'm going to tell you, them streets are dead and boring. And that ain't Paris. Yeah. I mean, post-war Paris, perhaps. Not where he's hanging out. That's fair. He, where he's supposed to be hanging out in Paris. Uh-uh. They would have been dirtier. <laughs> they would have been lively. They would have been filled with characters. The fact that there's no story and then it's just missing all of that energy. Here's the problem with this film. It is soulless. Yeah. That's it. That's what it comes down to. It's soulless. It's spectacle for the sake of spectacle. Until we get to that fucking ballet. <laughs> but even then, none of it's earned. No, it's not earned. I mean, I'm just, I'm gobsmacked by how gorgeous it is, but it is unearned. Well, at that point, I just set it aside because I was like, well, fuck it. This is gorgeous. I don't care. (laughs) One last note on the writing. Something interesting that Lerner was able to pull across in this is a theme that was prohibited explicitly in the production code. And that is that this story is of two, quote, kept people unable to commit to each other over fear for losing financial security. Mm -hmm. The script really works hard never to explicitly say that. They never actually say that to each other, Mm -hmm. but the theme is pulled across throughout the entire film, and that is something that the code specifically prohibited. So that is one thing in, you know, in looking back on the movie that people have said, actually, this is something he did pretty well here. Mm -hmm. So that is one interesting idea, but it's, it's a garbage script. God damn. Now let's talk about how good this movie looks. It's fucking gorgeous. And our director, well, they picked the right guy for a fucking gorgeous movie. It's Vincente Manelli. He is, of course, the father of Liza, and he is a past director on this show. Because before this, he directed Cabin in the Sky, then Meet Me in St. Louis, another gorgeous film. Mm-hmm. Then The Clock, 1945 Ziegfeld Follies, The Pirate, Madame Bovary, and 1950's Father of the Bride. After this, he directed The Bad and the Beautiful, The Bandwagon, Brigadoon, Kismet, Lust for Life, Tea and Sympathy, Designing Woman, Gigi, The Reluctant Debutante, Some Came Running, Bells Are Ringing, The Courtship of Eddie's Father, The Sandpiper, and On a Clear Day You Can See Forever. I mean, he's got chops. I'm not going to just leave it here. Because Minnelli got sole credit for the directing of this film, but he had some other stuff going on. Mm-hmm. Like a crap ton of other directing projects, because I guess he was a workaholic. And also, 
a pretty messy divorce with a lady we've talked about once or twice named Judy Garland. Oh, her. That was going on during this movie. Sometimes it was just production delays on this film where they were working on other stuff. So he went off and did other stuff while they were getting the other production stuff ready. Other times it was, you know, he had been court. So Gene Kelly took over directing duties, but received no credit. This explains some of the weirdness in the directing and themes of this film. Yep. These two guys do not share the same style at all. We've seen Gene Kelly when he's working with you know, his preferred collaborators or by mm-hmm. himself. Not a guy who's going to do a grand, epic, sweeping type of movie. It's not his forte. You know, the only time Gene Kelly did a really great job directing when he's not in front of the camera. Absolutely. He can't direct himself. No. He, he can't and he shouldn't. And I understand needing a certain amount of control and wanting that because of the choreography. But the rest of that is just bullshit. He's sort of a tyrant. We know his reputation. Oh, yeah. He's an asshole. If he wasn't that way, I think he could understand the difference between he will have sole control over the dance sequences and how they look. He needs to trust that the director is going to put it on film the right way. Yes. And that's his problem. Mm -hmm. He thinks nobody's going to be able to see it on camera the right way. So I've got to do that. That's an understandable level of control from him. What then bleeds out is then he thinks, well, if that's the case, then I should just also be directing the whole fucking movie. Mm -hmm. And you've got a guy who, like, has a very specific style. Minnelli worked within the studio system, but he's one of those guys who had a very specific visual style Mm -hmm. of how he made movies. And so, like, you've got this guy on board who's going to make this big, grand, sweeping film about Paris. Let him do his fucking job. You know, I get shit has to shut down and you've got to, you know, deal with the choreography, but trust this guy for fucking once. The biggest complaint about the directing in this movie is it feels like it jumps back and forth and it's pretty easy to tell who's doing what. Gene Kelly directed the entire Embraceable You sequence. Mm -hmm. He also directed the entire introductory sequence for Lisa, all the dance sequence for her in that moment. It also originally included a very seductive dance with a chair that the censors found a bit too suggestive, so it had to be removed. Yeah, I could see that. You could tell where they were headed in a very risque direction, because it's a movie about Paris. They were going to throw a little caution to the wind, and you can kind of see where they had to cut back because the censors were like, uh, no, absolutely not. Sums up with with the split on how this got directed and Manelli, you know, being in like five different pots at the same time doesn't help anything. It ends up being a mess and it's just it's not fun. Consistency. Consistency is key. Yeah. Especially when you're dealing with something that's this grand. Yeah. The ballet, <laughs> which, of course, we've talked about is. Gorgeous and beautiful, and if you take it on its own, is just like a stunning achievement in cinema. Mm-hmm. It took a month to film. It cost five hundred thousand dollars of the total budget. It almost got cut because the film was already behind schedule when they were ready to film. Okay. It actually took the head of MGM, Dor Sherry, to intervene and delay the release of the film because he, along with the creative team, all went. This movie 
will completely tank if we do not put this in. And they're right. This movie does not in any way work as a watchable movie unless you put that in at the end. Yeah, you're bored. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah, you're bored if you don't have this. And then all of a sudden you're like, well, you know what? I didn't love the movie, but I got to see something pretty freaking amazing. Mm -hmm. (laughs) The ballet itself wasn't conceived until halfway through production. There was a three-day delay during filming where Nina Foch caught the chicken pox and was not able to be on set. So during that time, the idea of the ballet came to Lerner, and he wrote it during those three days. Okay. Due to production breaks, Kelly actually started rehearsing the choreography on November 1st. They had to shut down for probably building sets for the sequence and stuff. When they actually resumed production on December 6th, and he had finished the choreography, Minnelli had already finished directing another movie, Father's Little Dividend. (laughs) Why does that sound highly inappropriate? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know how I feel about that. Um, That seems weird. Well, that's the 1950s. Mm-hmm. Costume designer Irene Sharaf and the team created design that would reflect various impressionist painters. Each sequence reflects a different painter. So the start of the dance at the Place de la Concorde is Raoul Dufy. The flower market is Edouard Manet. The Paris Street is Maurice Trio. The fair is Henri Rousseau. The Place de l'Opera is Vincent van Gogh. And the Moulin Rouge, they pointed out very clearly, is Henri de Toulouse-Lautrec. Yes. The backgrounds took six weeks to build, with 30 painters working nonstop. Mm-hmm. For the Toulouse-Lautrec sequence alone, Sharaf used 25 separate shades of yellow. Yeah. <laughs> It's bonkers how much they poured into this, and it's gorgeous. And also during that sequence, some of Toulouse-Lautrec's most famous subjects, like Yvette Gilbert, Jean Avril, Oscar Wilde, and the performer La Glue, are shown in the background of that sequence. Mm-hmm. I mean, goddamn. Yeah, I just... Yeah. I wonder, like, would this be better coming at the climax of the film? And having some sort of tail end of it instead of it being right at the end? Or does the movie just suck already so much that it doesn't matter where you put this? I think the ballet works best at the end. It, it's the payoff to what we've been watching. Yeah. If you put it sooner, everything else that comes after it is a letdown. I mean, honestly. Yeah. So it's appropriately placed. You just feel empty because you're like, I do feel empty. Why didn't everything really earn this huge, amazing dance number? Yeah. Of course, the ballet is such a big deal for this film that it has its own credit in the movie's opening titles. It states, and presenting the American in Paris ballet. That's so bizarre. (laughs) It's the 50s, man. I have no idea. Um. Despite Gene Kelly's objections, the entire film was shot at MGM Studios on 44 different sets. All of this was done in California. Love it. Which to me just points to the outstanding work of the art directors. It's so amazing. The studio claimed they couldn't secure the travel arrangements, couldn't figure out the locations. It was going to be a logistical nightmare. Mm-hmm. And, you know, now we could probably pull it off. 1951, fuck you, Gene Kelly. I don't care what it costs. 
The good news was that they had art director E. Preston Ames, who had actually studied in Paris. Mm -hmm. He'd studied the city. He knew it very, very well. So he was able to recreate all of those different sequences. I think the soullessness that you feel is the fact that the acting and the extras and everything they poured into those sets don't live up to the immaculate set design. They do such a great job recreating Paris from an art direction standpoint, but they don't do a good job in who they've got backing that up. I, I think that's a huge problem. I agree with that. It's an, it's an uncanny valley feeling in some ways. It is. That's the exact right way to say that. Uncanny valley. Because, you know, if we'd, if we'd have done this as a 50s Italian neorealism thing and we shot it all in Paris and it was on location, you were using real Parisians mm -hmm. in the background. Holy fuck, this movie would work. Yeah. I don't care how much weirdness is going on in the story if you're doing that whole, yes, but it's a slice of life. We're here. Yeah. Like, then you can get away with a whole bunch of story fuckery because no one cares. You feel like you're there. Yeah. And you don't have that. So you've either got to get this story snappier or you've got to have better acting. <laughs> Funny enough, the two shots that did occur in Paris, because they did get some external shots, but they don't have Gene Kelly in them at all. <laughs> because, of course not. You can't, yeah. Despite Ames's work that was immaculate and looked so gorgeous, Kelly was pissed and never, never convinced that the scenery looked realistic enough because he's Gene fucking Kelly. Yep. Um, let's get on to our cast. And we're going to start with a man who we literally just talked about in the last episode. Mm -hmm. It's Gene Kelly playing Jerry Mulligan. What do we think of Gene Kelly's performance in this movie? I mean, he's adorable. But to what end? Yeah, that's kind of the rub there. Like, in On the Town, he's adorable and wacky for a reason. Yeah. Because that's what the movie's calling for. In Seeing It in the Rain, he's a little less wacky, a little more smarmy, but also more tender, because that's what the movie calls for. Mm -hmm. In this movie, he has no fucking clue who this character is. No. And not only are you spot on about the fact that he can't act sad, but what adds to that is that, in a lot of ways, this is a sad movie. At least how it's framed. It, it is framed to be like melancholy. And I don't hate that. No. A melancholy grand sweeping musical like this would be amazing. Mm -hmm. I kind of hope that's what the stage version of it is because that makes a ton of sense. But like he doesn't have that. That's not what he does as an actor. It's not what he brings. It's frustrating. <laughs> It's frustrating because we know how good Gene Kelly is, mm -hmm. but it's one of these, like, he's so poorly cast acting wise, dance wise, fuck it. Like, he's the perfect choice. And in fact, the only who could have been better for this role was Fred Astaire. Fred Astaire was considered, but because of the ballet, because mm -hmm. of all of the ballet work required for this film, Gene was the obvious choice. Yeah, I believe that. Fred's a jazz and tap man. Like, that's what he does. Well, because Gene, Gene taps. Gene taps. But, but Fred Astaire can't do ballet the way Gene Kelly no. can do ballet. Like, that's the big thing. Here's the difference. Fred Astaire's ballroom and tap. Very true. Okay. And that's not to say that Gene Kelly isn't also ballroom and tap, but you also add the lyrical and the ballet to it in a way that Fred doesn't have. If you were going to put Fred in this movie, you put him as Henri. Yes. 
that's the natural role for Fred Astaire. Which would be kind of funny. I would be, it would be magic. Mm-hmm. It would be so good for him in that role as the older guy, because he is the older guy. Yeah. And in that sort of suave role, but he has to realize that she's not in love with him. He's in love with her, but she's not in love with him. And that's mm-hmm. a very different role for Fred, who is always the leading man. Even Funny Face, where that romance doesn't make any fucking sense, but they somehow make it kind of work. But like in this, to see him flip that script, be magical. So I don't know. There's just, you're right, Gene can't act sad. And if he can't act sad, this is the wrong role. It is. Because Jerry needs to be a little sad. <laughs> Which seems so weird. It really does. Gene does consider this probably his favorite of all of his musicals. That makes sense. It is a triumphant achievement. For all of the problems we have with it, mm-hmm. it does make an impact. In 1951, I can imagine my mind would have been blown by it. But just, there's no story here. <laughs> Next, we move on to Leslie Caron as Lisa Bouvier. This is her feature film debut, probably because she was never thinking about starring in a film ever before doing this. Okay. So after this, she was in Lily, The Glass Slipper, Daddy Longlegs, Gigi, The Battle of Austerlitz, The Subterraneans, Fanny, The L-Shaped Room, Is Paris Burning, The Man Who Loved Women, and Dangerous Moves. But she was discovered by Gene Kelly when he saw her in a ballet in Paris. She was a dancer. Mm. He suggested her because he didn't think an American actress pretending to be French would work. He felt they needed someone who was authentically French. And again, if he could act sad, and this was a tragic story, having a real Mm -hmm. French female actress works really well. Like it does. It makes a ton of sense to have somebody who feels authentic. But it's like they're trying to make this like whole bicycle thief version of stuff, but do it in the studio. And I was like, y'all couldn't pull that off. Like, you, you just can't do that because that's not how those movies get made. Those movies were made with, like, one actor and everybody else who lived in a fucking city was just prescripted into the fucking movie. Like, all those realism movies were all done with people from the towns they were in. Mm-hmm. That's why they felt so authentic. <laughs> yeah, I could see that. It feels like they were thinking down that road and that, that just doesn't play in a studio musical. No. Carone did not know who Gene Kelly was, hadn't seen any of his films prior to the screen test. I mean, I think she'd heard the name Gene Kelly, but it wasn't, she she was a French ballerina. Like, why would she care about Gene Kelly? Did the screen test, got the role, but of course, Kelly quickly turned into an asshole and perfectionist and their working relationship Mm -hmm. deteriorated quite quickly. And we'll get into more reasons for that. But what do we think of Leslie Curran? She's one of the best dancers I've seen on screen. Gorgeous. I mean, she is so much fun to watch. And that is so key for a, a, a dancer. I mean, technique is great, but some people you don't have perfect technique and they're just so much fun to watch. And she, I, I, I couldn't speak to her technique really, but she's just so much fun to watch. We talked about how Vera Ellen was able to match Gene Kelly. Mm hmm. You know, it wasn't like she was ever going to be on his level, but she was able, because of her technique and strength, she was able to push at the same level to be able to do those dances and stuff with him. Leslie's on another level. Mm -hmm. She has just as much expression, just as much style, 
of her own that complements Jean's style mm-hmm. in that ballet sequence. And in the acting scenes, she's green, but she feels like she's got an understanding of who this character is. Mm-hmm. It's one of the few actors in this whole movie who seems assured of who they are. Like, she's clearly, you know, a little stiff at times, but also she's French. Mm-hmm. With a bunch of American actors. So it's going to feel unnatural no matter what. And that only serves the character. She's one of the real bright spots of the movie. Because unlike everybody else, she feels like, you know, she actually belongs in the story. Yes. <laughs> Which is a goddamn shame because her character is so good. Her circumstances are so good. There's so much more they could have done with that. Mm-hmm. And instead, they're focusing on Jerry, this guy that why do we care why do we care about jerry mulligan they never gave us a reason to care about him. he is so boring other than the fact that it's gene kelly and he's super fucking charming yeah i mean that gets you a lot <laughs> it gets you a lot and it and it works when that's the story you're telling but that's not this story no it just comes back to like that is not what this is about there's so many deeper currents in this movie and they just kind of said, yeah, we don't, we have Gene Kelly. We can't do that. And just fucking yeah. chucked it out the window. Ugh! Frustrating. It's frustrating because this movie should be so much better than it is for how gorgeous it is. Yeah. While beginning the film, Carone did not speak English at all. She had a oh. vague understanding of the language because her mother was American. She learned it well enough to perform the role, but her dancing specifically is what got her this role. Yeah. And... Adding to my hatred for Gene Kelly's work ethic, Carone was in Paris and France during the Nazi occupation. Oh, wow. Okay. So because of that, she suffered from malnutrition. And because she had never worked on such a rigorous movie schedule, which this Mm -hmm. is a 1950s MGM movie, you best believe they were working them way too hard. Mm -hmm. She already had limited stamina. So she was only able to work every other day, given the amount of production schedule. And of course... That pissed Gene Kelly off because she couldn't work every goddamn day like he could. I hate him. (laughs) I love him, but I hate him. She also had a lot of issues with the studio floors because they were solid concrete, not sprung floors. And she she had never danced on that kind of concrete. They also had painted all those floors to look like the streets. So it made it even more slippery. It was Mm -hmm. a dancer's worst nightmare to try to perform on on those sound stages. Yeah. <laughs> and Gene's over there like, Muh, fucker. She just doesn't get it. He's such an ass. God, he is. I just, I'm annoyed at him. I'm annoyed at him on behalf of all the actresses who had to speak with him. Yeah. Yeah. Ugh. And a fun note, all of Curran's costumes were the exact same wardrobe used by Elizabeth Taylor in 1950's Father of the Bride. Oh, they're cute. Mm-hmm. Now we move on. To probably the most woefully miscast role I think I've seen in a long time. Mm-hmm. We have Oscar Levant playing Adam Cook, the piano player. Mm-hmm. Now, there's a reason why he's in this movie, despite the fact that they, in no way, should such a non-actor have been put in this role. Uh, yeah. Well, not with the way, yeah, this role needed to have been written for him better because this just isn't going to work. Again, it's part of it's his age, but he should like he should just be the guy who like is never away from his piano or like everywhere you go. He's near a piano. Oscar Levant was a composer, 
and pianist. He appeared in a handful of films, but the reason that he is here is because he was maybe George Gershwin's best friend. And after Gershwin's passing, became the sole interpreter and virtuoso of George Gershwin's music. He is the Gershwin connection. His friendship with Gershwin, along with being good friends with Arthur Freed and, and Vicente Manatli, was what led him to take the role. They're making hmm. a musical about Gershwin. Sure. I am the Gershwin man. They're going to write a piano player. I'll take it. Now, Levant was known for being a legendary wit. And in all honesty, that's the only thing that pulls him through this movie. He's not acting. He's just being himself. In fact, in the other movies he's been in, including before this Rhapsody in Blue, he plays himself in that movie because it's, a, it's the story of the Gershwins. Mm-hmm. He was also in Humoresque and the Bandwagon. But he's not in a whole lot of like big name movies because he was a concert pianist who happened to have a decent sarcasm and wit about him. Mm-hmm. Why is he in this goddamn movie? Because they sound, it seemed like a good idea at the time. Yeah. He's the Gershwin guy. But like, that's where it would have been more interesting if like every time we see him, he's at a piano. If they're at the bar, he's at the piano at the bar. And he's just playing whatever the instrumental music is in the scene. That dream sequence works so much better if we have a scene before where he goes to the piano and it's out of tune. Yeah. And he has to go upstairs because he's like, well, I can't play right now so then he dreams about playing yes and it's actually i read i don't think it's actually rhapsody in blue i believe it is one of his piano concertos that is that's actually what he's playing it's gershwin so it sounds so similar like i'm not (laughs) i'm not here to say like it it doesn't sound it's not the same thing but okay nevertheless we could have given this to an actual actor or we could have made this role a background role that was more entertaining as a little side story. He could have been the comic relief to a much kind of moodier story. Yes. He would have been great as that, but instead they made him this weird main character for no fucking reason. They don't know what they're doing. No, I have no idea. I'm sorry, Oscar the event. Like he is fun. He has his moments, Mm -hmm. but he shouldn't be in this goddamn movie. No, he shouldn't. Next, we have Georges Guattari as Henri Baurel. He is a French singer and performer. This is probably one of the only big American roles he ever had. Mm-hmm. Because he was two years younger than Kelly, they added gray to his hair to make him look older. It doesn't work at all. He still <laughs> looks younger than Gene Kelly. Yep. He's okay, but he's one note. They don't give his character anything until like the very end of the movie. To denote him as, you know, caring in any way. And like we talk about, because the story is so simplistic about this relationship between him and Lisa, he's Mm -hmm. nothing to chew on. He's so much more interesting if he went, I had to take her in when she was young. We just cared for each other. Now, all of a sudden, it feels like we're falling in love and I don't know how to feel about that. That's a much more interesting story. Yeah. And he has nothing to to play with that like he just has no concept whatsoever to do there Mm -hmm. so he's just boring who could have been better 1930s hollywood's go-to frenchman maurice chevalier chevalier had refused to appear in america because of significant questions related to his political leanings during world war ii aka it was widely understood that he was a nazi collaborator 
Uh, he claimed he didn't want to take the role because he didn't get the girl at the end of the film. But uh, fuck you, you're a Nazi. So. <laughs> and finally, for our main cast, we have Nina Fosch as Milo Roberts. Nina was a Dutch actress who was a go-to for the mysterious foreign woman in the golden age of Hollywood. Mm-hmm. Before this, she was in a crap ton of movies that I have never, ever heard of in my life, but some of them are probably really interesting. After this, Scaramouche, Fast Company, Executive Suite, The Ten Commandments, probably her biggest role, Spartacus, and then tons and tons of TV appearances. What do we think of Nina Fosh? They should have used her more. It complicates Jerry so much more and in a better way. It does. It could have been so much interesting, and especially if there's nothing romantic going on between them, but everybody else assumes that's what's happening. And she truly does. Like, especially if their relationship is completely innocent and that she really only wants him to support his art because she actually does like it. Like, that adds so many layers to what's happening. You know, part of it is that Oscar Levant is stealing the screen time that Nina Foss should should be getting in this movie. Mm -hmm. I don't even have a problem if she's romantically interested in him and he's just seeing it as a sponsor. Because again, that's where this movie winds up. They are each going to a respective partner who can support them in their their goals. Mm -hmm. So like, that's a good romantic complication and it's solid and it's a mirror and it makes a lot of sense. Uh huh. But you're right. They don't spend nearly enough time with her, and she is far more important than Adam Cook is. Adam Cook needs to be the like little radar glue character that's the comic relief and just a little common thread between these people. Mm-hmm. A background character that also ties some things together and kind of a narrator. Yeah, I could see that. And they don't do that. They try to foreground all of these characters in some weird way, and it makes no sense. Because of Nina's chicken pox conundrum that we spoke of before, a team of makeup artists had to work on her to cover all of the pock marks. Mm -hmm. And who could have been better? Celeste Holm of All About Eve High Society and a cast member of the original Oklahoma. She sang, I can't say no. Mm -hmm. Minnelli had her in mind for the role, but was convinced to have a screen test with Fosh because she was an MGM contract player. So they wouldn't have to reach outside of the studio. Interesting. Okay. And that leads us to our pawns. Random people of note. We have Madge Blake playing Edna Mae Bestrom, the perfume lady. She played Aunt Harriet Cooper in the 1966 Batman. She was also Dora Bailey in Singing in the Rain and was a model for the fairies in Sleeping Beauty. Hmm. Dudley Field Malone playing Winston Churchill. We'll explain how Winston Churchill shows up in this movie and why later. But Malone is a fascinating character. He was the third assistant secretary to William Jennings Bryan, who served as the secretary of state for President Woodrow Wilson. He got pretty dang high up in politics. Mm -hmm. He was also an international divorce lawyer and one of the attorneys for John T. Scopes in the infamous Scopes Monkey Trial the subject of Inherit the Wind. He refuted William Jennings Bryan's arguments in that case. That's right, the two former allies went against each other in court, and he is widely considered to have given one of the best speeches in the final closing arguments of the trial defending academic freedom. The reason he got this role? 
because he looked a hell of a lot like Winston Churchill. Yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> wow, that's so bizarre. That is truly a random person of note. Mm-hmm. We have Noel Neal playing an American girl. She played Lois Lane in the 40s and 50s Superman opposite George Reeves. Anna Q. Nielsen playing Jay Jansen. She is one of the earliest silent film stars and models, popularly known as Anna Q. You might consider her one of the very earliest supermodels before that term was a thing. We have Alex Romero as a dancing GI. We talked about him on On the Town. He's a very famous choreographer. Mm-hmm. And Hayden Rourke playing Tommy Baldwin. He played Dr. Alfred Bellows on I Dream of Jean. He played Be- He's Sergeant Bellows. That is him. Wow. <laughs> man, blasphemy. Man, I used to watch Genie all the time. Fuck. Truly random people of note. Truly random. Now let's talk about awards, because holy fucking shit. Mm-hmm. This movie got nominated for a lot of awards and won a good chunk of those. Okay. Let's start with what it lost. It lost Best Director, and it lost Best Editing. It won Best Cinematography Color. An interesting note about this is that John Alton, the cinematographer, typically worked in black and white. This was actually his first ever color film. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, he had it out of the park, so... Oh. Damn. Oh, yeah. It won Best Art Set Decoration, Color. It won Best Costume Design, Color. It won Best Score of a Musical, Duh. It won Best Story and Screenplay. Really? Uh, how, how, how... <laughs> yeah. I don't know how that's possible. Ha <laughs> ha. And it won Best Picture for 1951. Let me point out who it was up against. Mm-hmm. Decision Before Dawn, don't know about it, war mm-hmm. movie. Quo Vadis, pretty well-known Roman history picture. Mm-hmm. A Place in the Sun, young Warren Beatty, very well regarded. Mm-hmm. And, um, well, it's this, it's this little indie movie that could, starring an up-and-coming actor. It's called A Streetcar Named Desire. I just did an eye roll with my whole face. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, this beat A Place in the Sun and A Streetcar Named Desire for Best Picture. I don't give two shits about Streetcar Named Desire, but I know it's better than this. I mean, it's the 20 minutes. You're, you're putting 20 minutes against the rest of those. And I get that. That is hard. 100%. I get it. It's hard. But fuck. But against what's widely considered one of the most groundbreaking acting films of all they time bought these statues this is some bullshit yeah that that or they split the ticket so much that I... this is how it won because to be fair we've seen this bullshit happen i mean like i love you anthony hopkins but you didn't get more than 40 percent <laughs> this year the movie was amazing but it was amazing and he was amazing in it and i am not sad about his nomination no and i'm also never taking back that chadwick should not have been nominated in that category yes. however we know how that happened. Huh. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. This movie, 20 minutes of which is actually successful, mm-hmm. beat out one of like the most well-regarded romances of all time, A Place in the Sun, and then what is widely considered like the introduction of realistic acting in Hollywood mm-hmm. with Streetcar. And imagine the fact that the script for Streetcar didn't win. 
the fucking Tennessee Williams adapted script did not beat this garbage. I just don't know how that's possible. MGM was so shocked about winning the award that they took out a full page ad in Variety with Leo the Lion looking very chagrin. <laughs> very like, oops. <laughs> and saying, quote, Honestly, I was just sitting in the sun waiting for a streetcar, very jokingly nodding that we did not think we were winning this award. It was almost like an, oops, sorry. (laughs) No. I just, no. No. This might be one of the biggest robberies in the history of the Oscars, and that's saying something. I... It deserves all of those technical awards no doubt it does yeah it, it it does hands down i will give it to it it is a technical fucking marvel and it is gorgeous and it does it, it's clearly influential it deserves to be studied because of how beautiful and crafted it is mm-hmm. no i agree doesn't make it a good fucking movie no woof all right well we have a little bit of trivia just a little Okay. Because we talked a lot about what was going on with the actors. One sequence that got cut from the film was a version of Gershwin's I've Got a Crush on You that Gene sang and danced entirely in his pajamas. The censors thought this was too risque. And a similar scene was in Singing in the Rain, but also got cut for the same reason. Mm-hmm. I want to see Gene Kelly dance in his goddamn pajamas. That sounds amazing. Yes. The only song in the film presented as a show tune is I'll Build a Stairway to Paradise, sung by Henri. Gene Kelly said the hardest thing he had to do for the film was to teach George Guattari how to climb the steps and perform without tripping. Okay. Not something he was apparently used to. Also, the studio lights were too hot for several of the showgirls who passed out from the heat. You have a bunch of fainting ladies. But that sequence was very explicitly emulated for Marilyn Monroe's performance of Diamonds Are a Girl's Best Friend, and, of course, Madonna using that sequence as inspiration for her Material Girl video. Mm-hmm. As Jerry sets up his paintings at Montmartre, he does a double take at what appears to be a double for Winston Churchill, and mm-hmm. then shakes his head. This is because, at the time, a painting done by Winston Churchill sold for $11 million. Wow. I forgot that he painted... He was like a prolific painter. It was like, it was one of his stress relief things. <laughs> that's just one of those, that's why you put it in the movie? Okay, whatever. It's, fu- it's a funny bit, but 70 years on, who the fuck would know? <laughs> True. A version of Gene Kelly's black and white collared shirt was sold by Pierre Cardin during the 70s trend of designer sportswear ready to wear. Mm-hmm. And this is the only ever best picture winner. To have a title starting with the definite article, Anne. Well, that's stupid. And that leads us to ratings. For every film, we have a dedicated rating system. For this film, what are we going to use? Flesh-colored unitards. <laughs> that was so jarring. <laughs> wow. You had that locked and loaded, ready to go. It took me, I just went with my first instinct. It came and I was like, that's it. That's what it is. It's very distinct, and you know exactly what we're talking about. Oh, but what about the clown costume? The black and white clown costume at the art student party? No, because that's almost cool. <laughs> like, that's a choice. How many flesh-colored unitards 
are we going to give this movie? Two and a half. <laughs> it is so beautiful. It is so beautiful. I am only giving two and a half stars, two and a half flesh colored unitards to the dance sequence. There are no stars given for the rest of this film. Nothing. 20 minutes got you a two and a half because it is so perfectly done. Even with me mocking the flesh colored unitard thing. I don't even know. And the matching hat. Jesus. I think I called him sperm when he did that. <laughs> I think they did. Yeah, it's two and a half, but it, I'm only grading the dance sequence because if it didn't have that, it would be zero because I'm like, this is crap. <sighs> I'm going to go two. I think it's gorgeous. I think it's a beautiful film. The reason I doubt, and in fact, I think it's gorgeous across the board, like just visually stunning, no matter what, even in some of the most boring sequences of the film, I'm still like, wow, this is pretty. And then, you know, I'm like, oh, I see this movie taking it. Oh, I see this movie taking it. I mean, there's parts of the dance sequence where like, that's fucking Star Wars. Mm -hmm. Like Lucas is pulling from this shit. Yeah. And you know, he was because everybody saw this fucking movie who was a film student. So like, there's so much, it's a visual feast, but there's nothing to it. And the whole time you're just slogging through, like, I love looking at this, but I don't care. Yeah. And I just, I can't even rise to that even level because even then it's just like, no. <laughs> yeah. And what's sad here is that this is a movie I recommend everyone watch because of how beautiful it is. But like, don't pretend like it's going to be the most fun thing you've ever seen in your life because wow, is it just bonkers boring. Mm. Thoroughly meh in so many ways. Well, let's go from a movie that has zero drama to... A twin bill of movies with absolute high drama. Oh, we like drama. This is actually only half of the four versions of this movie that have been made. Hmm? We are going to do a double feature of 1954 and 1976's A Star is Born. Oh, so that would be The Garland mm -hmm. and The Streisand. Correct. Okay, so what's the what's the third one we're missing? The original was made in 1937. I don't believe it's a musical. That doesn't really count. Like it does, but it doesn't. It is the origination of the story. Yes. So this is number two and number three. Correct. And then of course oh. we know Lady Gaga. Lady Gaga. And a guy named Brad Cooper. He was on Alias. That, that's all you would know him from. They both made a a, a little version of this that did okay. Spawned a, spawned a song you might remember. Shut up. It was such a good movie. Every nomination was earned for that film. Okay. But other films were better. And that's why I didn't win. And that's okay. And I'm not mad about it. They made a beautiful film. I'm proud of them. Yeah. Good job. It's, it's beautiful. <laughs> but we're going to watch arguably the, the most famous iterations of it. Yeah. Until now. Now that we'll have seen them all. That we can. We can watch the 37 version, but it's not a musical, so we can't really fit it into this, you know? Well, it doesn't, it doesn't work here. So we're not gonna. And we have to answer then the question. Judy or Barbara? Barbara or Lady Gaga? <laughs> but before we go. We have some new movies we've seen. So this week we saw Halloween Kills. The saga of Michael Myers and Laurie Strode continues in the next thrilling chapter of the Halloween series. 
This movie was a real disappointment. It's a letdown from the first one. They are clearly trying to build stuff up for another movie. Which is fine. But they didn't do a good job of having a compelling story for us to hang on to for this one. The hook wasn't great. And the way this film is billed is like it's going to be Lori heavy. Lori's barely in the movie, which is fine. I do like the return of a bunch of actors from the original film. I think that's great. And that's fun. There's some horror movie fans who have talked about like they really, really tried to retcon the old sequels instead of just like, how about you just play with the lore that's already there and not try so hard? And and I think that might be a factor. Like they leaned really hard into some plot elements that were changed from the original Halloween 2. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of people who went, that movie is not great, but it's perfectly fine. And there was no reason to try to dive into so much detail on all that past stuff. The the thing is, they use a lot of exposition to do that retconning instead of just being like, that. this is what actually happened. And that would have been fine. So that wastes a lot of time in the movie. Because one of the things about horror films is that you just kind of accept, like, okay, this is what we're going with. All right, let's go. What good or bad, you just kind of like... We're fearing for our lives. We're just going to accept what's here. And that's okay. And then there was just like all of this. There's just there's a lot of business that just didn't serve the bigger story. And I don't feel like they knew what they were doing with their bigger story in this movie. And I feel like it's going to feel like it makes more sense in the next one. Because that's the that's the ending of their story of what they've set out to do. Yeah. My only issue is you can't really do that with horror. You can do that with epics. You can do that with other stuff. But for me with a slasher movie, I don't feel like you can, you can leave a whole bunch of threads hanging for no good reason. It needs to be a fairly self-contained unit with the open threads teasing us for the next thing. I think you can, but you have to plant seeds and then end this story here. Like, it's just weird. Like, I think they did not write this as its own chapter in the story. It's like a part one of part two or whatever. It's weird. It's, it's, it's not very good. Just gonna, I'm just gonna not try not to be so mean about this movie until I see their last one. Absolutely. I agree. I agree. But Boy, it's not up to the level as the new one. It was disappointing. Next, I saw The Last Duel. King Charles VI declares that Knight Jean de Carouge settled his dispute with his squire by challenging him to a duel. I saw this film with David's mom, and David was not interested in seeing this, but I believe he's going to have to. Yeah. Because it was really good. It's the story of the last sanctioned duel in France. It's just constructed really well they tell the story in three parts there's the husband's version of events there is the accused gentleman's version of events and then there's as it states in the movie the truth what the wife 
says happens. <laughs> so there's there's some good cheeky feminist things that they've written in there. And it's, it's just really well done. It's wonderfully performed, beautifully shot and well written. So I I do think we're going to see a few Oscars nominations out of this. So I would go see it because it's, it's also really compelling. Yeah, it's just everything marketing wise for this movie made me go, well, it just seems like, you know, a new historical epic rehash from Ridley Scott. Like, it didn't seem like it was going to do anything new with that story. And that's what it initially made me go, eh, whatever. Like, if it if it gets a bunch of acclaim, of course, I'm going to have to watch it later. But it's not something I felt like I had to go run out and see. I legitimately do not believe there's going to be a single film this Oscar seasons that gets a huge smattering of, of award nominations unless they're technical awards. There's not going to be a sweep. I think we have such a weird landscape and we have so many this year because the cutoff is again at December 31st that no film's going to be able to sweep. Too too wide a net to have too many films that can be so universally like, yes, this is it, you know? Yeah, but I if I have to be very like very limited, Jodie Comer needs to be nominated for Best Actress. I would not be mad with an adapted screenplay because uh, it is based on a book. I'm betting on that one easily. That makes so much sense. And uh, depending on on how everything else looks, I could see a director and then maybe some production, uh, costume, production design, stuff like that. But yeah, uh, it's going to be a hard year with all the sci-fi stuff coming out at the end of the year. I could see this being our like, well, here's the bar. Are you going to clear it movie? A little bit. I feel like this is our here's the Oscar bar, guys. Now let's let we're officially in Oscar season. In any other year, this would be a Matt Damon, maybe a Ben Affleck. Adam Driver for sure would be getting nominated. Adam Driver's gonna get nominated for something else instead. And that's fine. <laughs> it's I'm not worried about it. But yeah, this is definitely like, okay, here's our benchmark. This is our histor- this is our historical Oscar drama. Here we go. I will view it when it is available via streaming. Fair. And next we saw. Dune. Feature adaptation of Frank Herbert's science fiction novel about the son of a noble family entrusted with the protection of the most valuable asset and most vital element in the galaxy. So we are trying to be a little more economical with our film choices. And since we have HBO Max, we decided to watch this at home. <sighs> David is not pleased with this decision, but... <sighs> uh, we we had to make we make a financial choice, and this one was a home was a home choice. This movie does beg quite literally for you to watch it on a giant screen if you can, and that's within your means. Then do so. I agree. I have never seen all of the first one of the original film. I had a roommate in college who would watch it occasionally, so I saw like bits of it, but I didn't know anything about it. So I really came to this brand new, and I. I really enjoyed it. There's already been so much talk from people who love Dune, who love, you know, the whole story of it. Mm -hmm. There's people who just love the David Lynch version from the 80s because it's just so delightfully weird. Mm -hmm. And I'm kind of one of those people. Um, I saw it probably way too young. It scared the shit out of me when I saw it, but it made an impact because of just how bonkers sci-fi it was. Mm -hmm. This movie does something really well, which is that it takes a story that by all rights is unfilmable. And somebody had the great point of like, it's really only unfilmable because you're taking what equates to like a BBC Roman 
epic storyline that takes like seven episodes of two hours to pull through entirely. Mm-hmm. And you're trying to fit it into a giant sci-fi budget film because yeah. that's what Dune as a novel demands you do. So it's like a whole huge thing. It's like Lord of the Rings in space. Yes. This movie does the really great thing of slowing the fuck down and not trying to tell the whole story in one movie. Mm-hmm. That's also a bit to its detriment at times. See, I did not feel that. Now. I did go into it knowing that this was a very big story and that this was part one. Yeah. I did know that. So we weren't going to get, I wasn't going to get a a conclusion per se. And that was fine with me. So it, to a certain extent, it was a little, I, I think it needs to be compared more to Lord of the Rings. Yeah. And the hope is that Warner would do the right thing and actually make these sequels. They haven't officially signed on to do part two. Partially because they're seeing how well it does. No, and it's a very expensive film and it's pretty epic, but I really enjoyed it. I like all the world building. They do a really good job of showing and not telling and just allowing things to be with without further explanation. And you're just supposed to figure it out, particularly all the languages, the fact that sign language is being used readily. And I think that's really interesting. There's just, there, yeah, there's just a lot of showing and not telling. And I think that's really great. And I'm sure if I was familiar with the books or the previous movie, I would catch more things. But I, as someone who's coming to it new, I was able to enjoy it. And I would look forward to part two. Yeah. So they accomplished their goal in that because one of the things that, Some people really do forget when new adaptations are made of books or previous series or whatnot, is that you do have to appeal to a new audience and new eyes and people who know nothing, who are going to come to this only as this piece of media. And so like, one, we also have a really interesting situation here because the original adaptation of it was a massive failure. Understood. Well known as one of the biggest Hollywood failures of all time. There's a lot of reasons for that. I really like the David Lynch adaptation. And one of the things about it, you could almost compare it to the Tim Burton Batman and the Christopher Nolan Batman. David Lynch's Mm -hmm. version of Dune is a much more balls to the wall. It's 10,000 years in the future. Fuck it. We're going to go for broke. Like we're just going to really go out there as wild sci-fi as we can think. Mm -hmm. And so I think some people will see this. And really be like, it feels a little sterile and cold and boring. And I do understand that. Sure. There's also a whole thing about a legendary weird experimental director who planned a project of Dune. There's a documentary about it. And like that shit was wild because this story inspires that in creative people. Mm -hmm. Um, It just gives you this sort of free reign. Denny really reined it in. That's really good to make a watchable movie. It just is. And so, like, I do miss the wildness of it a little Mm -hmm. bit, but I do think what he came up with was really fucking cool and sustainable to make more movies about this story if he's got ideas on how to make it work. Because I'll tell you, we're scratching the surface of just how fucking weird Dune can get. Oh, I'm I'm aware of some of that. (laughs) But, like, 
there there's moments in there where I'm like, wait, is this what that's implying? And I asked David because we're at home so we could talk what during the movie. Yep. He's like, yeah, that's what that means. And I was like, okay, cool. But again, as somebody who's coming to this with mostly brand new eyes, that's good. Yeah. That means they did their job. Somebody who doesn't know shit about Dune, honestly, saw the movie, saw the trailer and was like, hey, that looks cool. Went and saw it and was like, hey, I want to see the next one because I enjoyed my experience in this film. And it's well performed. I was so thrown off by Javier Bardem. He's got blue eyes. So that was just like, what? It's the spice. <laughs> it is. A, I know it's the spice. Timothy Chalamet. It's just he's a phenom. Just a little fucker. <laughs> I love him. He's, he's fine. He's a little whiny for this role. I like Kyle McLaughlin better. But as we get into the story, that will change. Sure. And uh, I love, I mean, I love Jason Momoa in that role. They got the supporting cast perfect. The, ca- the supporting cast perfect. was really great. Um, very compelling and interesting. And not stunt casting for the sake of stunt casting ever. I didn't feel it. And also, you know, I like that not everybody's white because, you know, well, except for the bad guys. The bad guys are straight up white. Well, yeah, because, because that's because how that truth. Works. It's truth. But like in the in the original Dune, it's all very fucking white. And had David Lynch had foresight and like a, a whole lot of experience under his belt, probably wouldn't be the case. But that was his third ever movie. So okay. <laughs> I enjoyed it. And I think it's worth seeing. Having watched it at home, I would say it would have been cool to see this on a big screen. But, you know, do what you got to do. I did like Zelda Williams point of I am watching Dune as God intended in the lower corner of a screen while I play Candy Crush or something like that. <laughs> I was like, you know, solid burn. Solid no burn. Judgment. No judgment. <laughs> All right. Well, until next time. Have a good movie. Thanks for listening. Be sure to review and rate us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcast. For questions, comments, and recommendations, you can email us at macintoshandmod at gmail.com or find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook.